It's awesome to uh, see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, like John, I want to uh, welcome and congratulate the dads. Um, I think you know, one of the things that happens on any Father's Day is uh, the people around you say, hey, it's your day. What do you want to do? And the fact that what you wanted to do involved coming here and uh, worshiping and uh, leading your family spiritually is just really a big deal. And uh, so congratulations. Let's congratulate the dads. Let's thank them. Um, the, the, you men are leading, you're leading, you're leading at home, you're leading in your church, you're leading in your work, and yeah, I'm thankful for that. So uh, we're in this book of Nehemiah, uh, this is part three, and this passage really is kind of a passage about leadership. So that's kind of what we're uh, looking into, interestingly enough. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up a little bit on what's happened in the uh, book of Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah is, uh, he's a cupbearer to the king of Persia. The people of Israel had been uh, scattered, they had to leave their land, and so they're now uh, mostly in Persia. And uh, as a cupbearer to the king of Persia, that's like being a, a secret service member. He was the guy that was supposed to taste the food and the wine uh, before the king did in case there was a poisoning or something like that. And so some of the people of Israel have started to come back uh, to Jerusalem uh, so that they can establish life there and worship the Lord there. Um, but it's going really poorly. And in chapter one, Nehemiah gets word from uh, the homeland that it's really not going well, that uh, people are discouraged, people are ashamed, uh, the walls are in disrepair, the cities in disrepair. And, and there's a lot of focus, especially on the walls, because the walls signify that, that Jerusalem is a legitimate city and it allows them to worship the Lord faithfully. And so uh, Nehemiah is grieved by this and he, he, he cries and he prays for about four months. And then in chapter two, the Lord opens up a door, opens up an opportunity. He has a conversation with the king where the king notices that he's really discouraged, says, hey, what's going on? And he boldly says, hey, I, I'm really brokenhearted about what's going on back in Jerusalem and I would like to go help lead an initiative to change it. And I'd like to go rebuild the walls. And I'd really actually like you to provide a lot. I need lumber. I need an armed guard. I need lots of different stuff. Would you please give that to me? He courageously asked. And amazingly, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, says, yeah, go ahead. Let's do it. And so chapter three then kind of overviews how each person did a portion of the wall. And uh, you read chapter three and you're almost like, oh, it's finished. And then you get to chapter four and what you realize is that the author is kind of zooming back and saying, now let's actually talk about how it went. And uh, I think this is an especially important chapter uh, for those of you who are involved in leading. And I'm actually going to argue today that that's all of you. Some of you are like, well, yeah, I lead this division, I lead this company, I lead this team, I lead this family. Some of you, you go, I don't know, I don't think I'm a leader. And I want to tell you, I hope you're leading yourself. And that's usually the hardest person to lead. <laughs> and anyone in other positions of leadership knows that the most important person to lead is actually yourself. And what we've said about this series is that this uh, series and this book of Nehemiah is, is written to help us to be fearless and faithful in a world of discouragement and danger. And anytime you're leading something, what you're doing, here's what leadership is. Leadership is saying, we're here and we should go there. That's what it is. So leadership, get this, by definition, is always leading change. If you just want the status quo, you just stay where you are. You're not going anywhere. You're just staying, right? That's not leadership. Leadership is saying, we should go there. I should go there. Why don't we do that? Follow me. That's what leadership is about. And, and why is leadership so hard? 
Why is it so hard to lead other people? Why is it so hard to lead yourself? Right, think about this. Maybe you are trying to lead your family to start eating vegetables. Anybody have kids that pretty much just like uh, pizza? And uh, that's not gonna be easy, right? That's gonna be a difficult leadership move, right? And, and that can be really, really hard. Maybe you're trying to lead a, 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 your team at work to embrace a new tool or embrace a new process or to say, hey, we've been doing it like this. We now need to do it like that. That's difficult. Maybe you're trying to lead yourself to read the Bible every morning before you touch your phone. That's going to be hard. Maybe you're trying to lead a group of parents uh, who, who all have kids on the team that you coach, and you're trying to lead the parents to not be psychos. And it's like, hey, that's going to be hard, right? Maybe, maybe you're like me, and you're involved in helping lead a church, lead a church to embrace the radical love of Jesus while also holding fast to the absolute truth of God's word. There's a lot of what I think about what we're trying to do as Redemption Church is we want to help us become a faithful witness in a changed and changing world. I don't know if anyone's figured out that the world's not super like rah-rah about Christianity these days. And we can kind of do one of two things that I don't think we should do. One is we can just go, oh man, they're right. We really are the worst. Let's just be like them. The other is to go, well, they're stupid. Who cares what they think? We actually are trying to be something totally different, to go, we want to be a faithful witness because we weren't sent uh, here as the people of God to create a holy huddle that just tries to kind of, you know, keep ourselves happy, but we actually have a mission that Jesus would be known and that he would be loved and that he would be preached and that he would be uh, proclaimed to the nations. And so we want to be faithful in that in a world that isn't really that interested in it. That's going to be hard. There's lots of aspects of leadership that are hard. Why is leadership so hard? Well, here's why. Leadership is so hard because people resist change. Right? Think about it. If leadership is we're here and we need to go there, that's a change. People resist change. There's always opposition to change. Other words for opposition would be resistance, dissent, obstruction, reluctance, sabotage. And again, maybe all you're doing is just leading yourself. And here's what I want to tell you. If you try to lead yourself to read your Bible before you read your phone, you're going to find opposition. They come in the form of push notifications, for example. Or, uh, hey, I have to get dressed. I wonder what the weather is today. Quick, let me check. And off you go. Right? You're going, anytime you lead anything, you're going to find resistance. You're going to find sabotage. You're going to find reluctance, all that sort of stuff. So here's the big idea from uh, Nehemiah chapter 4 today, is that opposition and sabotage are normal and inevitable parts of leading change, and they must be overcome to have a better future. Opposition and sabotage are normal, e even sabotage from ourselves. They're normal. We get, we get all bent out of shape. We go, man, I had this vision, and I had this direction, and I had this goal, and I cast it, and it was great, and then everybody resisted it. I must be on the wrong track. No. Resistance doesn't mean you're on the wrong track. Resistance means you're leading. Here's how 
Uh, Edwin Friedman, he's a rabbi and a family systems scholar. Here's how he describes this. He says, the important thing to remember about the phenomenon of sabotage is that it is natural. It's normal. It's part and parcel of the leadership process. Saboteurs are usually doing nothing but unconsciously supporting the status quo. So when he uses the word sabotage, that sounds real aggressive, doesn't it? But, but what he's meaning is just anyone who's trying to just say, no, 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 let's just stay where we are. That's the status quo. Anyone fighting for that is a saboteur. He says, a leader can never assume success because he or she has brought about a change. It's only after having first brought about a change and then subsequently enduring the resultant sabotage that the leader can feel truly successful. So that's what we have in chapter four. Nehemiah has had the resources, God has opened the doors, God has created the thing, and it's like, all right, let's build the wall, let's do this thing, here we go. And what does he face? Opposition, resistance, sabotage. Let's look at it for a moment. If you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter four, the first three verses describe this, uh, this opposition that comes from external people, from Sanballat and Tobiah. These were local governing officials that weren't Jews, but they were part of uh, leading the, the surrounding areas. And so they mock and they jeer and they taunt and they cast all this doubt and dispersion. Well, that leads Nehemiah in verses four and five to pray. He just goes straight into prayer. He doesn't fight with them. He doesn't argue. He just prays. And then they get to work in verse six. They build build the wall. Um, They get the wall going to the point it says in verse six, all the wall was joined together to half its height. So, So in other words, rather than building a couple portions of the wall to full height, they said, let's build it partway, but connect it all the way around. So they're going, they're moving, they're doing this. Well, this doesn't stop the opposition. This doesn't stop the resistance. It actually just makes it crank up even more. And so they're getting very angry in verses seven and eight. They're plotting. They're trying to say, how can we cause confusion? How can we disrupt this? And as a result, verse nine, Nehemiah says, we prayed to our God and we set a guard and we just said, hey, we're not backing down from this. Well, then in verse 10, the the people, not just the external opponents of this project, but the people involved in the project in verses 10, 11, and 12, they start to get scared. Because in verse 11, the opponents are saying, hey, we're going to sneak in. We're going to attack them. We might even kill them. There's threats of violence. It's getting very dangerous. And 10 times, it says in verse 12, even some of the people involved in doing the project, the Jews that were supposed to buy in, are saying, hey, maybe we should back out. And so in verses 13 and 14, Nehemiah says, no, we're not backing down. Remember the Lord. Fight for your future. And then the rest of the chapter is basically describing how that happened, how people were, you know, kind of working with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And they're defending themselves even as they build this wall. It's a great story, and I think it's a perfect description of the kind of opposition that we face when we try to lead things. Now, get this. This is a typical kind of opposition, not a universal. So I'm not saying that every opposition we face will be exactly like this one. But I think what we find here is kind of pretty normal. So here's what we're going to do in this passage is we're going to look at six kinds of opposition that uh, just Nehemiah has to experience in this process. And then we're going to look at six ways that he fights to overcome that opposition. So you with me? You ready? You have in mind something you're going, I'm trying to lead this. I'm trying to change this. I'm trying to go this new direction. If you got that, here's what's coming. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for these lessons. Help us to learn them and hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so opposition, what does it look like? Well, first, opposition often expresses negative emotions from the threat of something to lose, right? The reason people resist change is because there's always something to lose, right? If something is going to change, then someone's gonna lose what they experience in the status quo, and that loss is gonna be painful, and that loss is gonna be difficult. And so when there's a threat of loss, people respond, we naturally do this with negative emotions, and that's what you see in verse one. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. That phrase means literally he was hot, with extreme anger. He was upset about this. He jeered, he mocked at the Jews. He's, he's angry. Why? Because my power's threatened, he's thinking, right? He's a, he's a local, we actually know this, this is interesting. We have a papyrus from archeology span that tells us that Sanballat in 407 um, was a governor of Samaria. So this has been testified to outside of the scriptures. This is a real guy, this is real stuff, this really happened. And as a, as a local leader, he's going, man, if, if Jerusalem gets on its feet again, that's going to threaten my power. When people's power is threatened, when people's change or, or control is threatened because of a change, they get mad. And this is where some of us give up, right? When you're leading something and you get an initial angry reaction, some of us just stop there because some of us, we're so uncomfortable dealing with people that are mad, or they don't like this, or they're upset, that we just go, well, never mind, and we just cave in right there, right? This is when you're like, no, we really are gonna eat vegetables tonight. No, we're not. Let's go, uh, chicken nuggets it is. Here we go, you know? Like, and, and, uh, and I'm not, get this, by the way, I'm not saying that that's the fight you should fight as a parent. You gotta, there's a million fights. You gotta pick if that's the one. But you just get it, right? There's a negative reaction, and a lot of us go, oh, never mind. It stops right there. Right, the diet starts Monday. And at lunch, you're at In-N-Out Burger, right? Because it just happened quick. All right, so it expresses negative emotions from the threat of something to lose. We also see that in verse seven. He's very angry there as well. Uh, second thing, the opposition often sows diabolical doubt. Verses two and three describe this doubt that, that begins to creep up because of Sam Ballot's words. It says, and he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? So in other words, they're weak. Will they restore it for themselves? Like, is, are they really gonna be able to do this? Will they sacrifice? In other words, is this gonna be part of their faith? They don't have the faith to do this. Their God's not real. Will they finish up in a day? Because listen, they're weak, and if they don't finish it up in one day, they'll probably quit. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burns ones at that? Where are they even going to get the materials to do it, right? Jerusalem's in ruins. It all got burned down 70 years ago. They're not going to pull this off. Doubt, 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 doubt. Tobiah is even just kind of straight up meaner in verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Right, it's like, your mama's so weak, she couldn't even hold a fox, right? That's kind of what he's saying. So, so this is often what the opposition does. When the opposition to any kind of leadership and any kind of change gets angry, they also start sowing doubt. Get this, the questions of verse two are not sincere questions of someone saying, hey, how are we gonna make this work? Help me understand. These are questions that are designed to make you not trust the direction. 
And that's why I call them diabolical. Do you notice the kind of satanic flavor to those questions? Right, think about the Garden of Eden. Everything's good in chapters one and two of Genesis. Then you get to chapter three, and what does Satan do? Does he come out right away and say, hey, God's stupid, don't trust him, don't believe the guy, he's an idiot. He doesn't do that, what does he do? He says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from that tree? He plants a seed of doubt with this suspicious question. When Satan encounters Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, and Jesus has been uh, fasting for 40 days and he's in the wilderness, what does Satan do? He says, well, if you're the son of God, and this is the nature of it. It's, it's, it's angry, it's hot with emotion in verse one, but a lot of times people aren't quite willing to be that outwardly angry, so they're just subtle and passive aggressive and sowing doubt. And the reason that this is often effective is because number three, it isn't entirely incorrect. The opposition isn't entirely correct. Oftentimes when people raise things that try to sow doubt, they're, they're, they're not raising crazy things, they're raising things that actually kind of make sense. Like think about this. Like Seth made a great point last Sunday as he was preaching two and three about how Nehemiah didn't go get the professional wall builders, he just got all the regular Joes. And everyone just built a little bit of the wall. So, so the critique that, hey, these people don't know what they're doing. These people don't have the endurance for this. These people are going to quit. These people stink at this job. True or false? Yeah, kind of true. And that's the interesting thing, is that sometimes critics actually have a good point. I think as a leader, sometimes you can ignore those points to your own folly. But also, you can sometimes get in a spot where you you start to doubt because, yeah, they're not all wrong. The question is, what's the goal? What's the motive? And, and these people are not trying to say, hey, here's some flaws in our plan. Why don't we tighten this up so that we can make it happen? They're trying to say, here's some big problems we should stop. And so a lot of it has to do with what's the goal and what's the motive and where is this going, right? Think about this. When you think about the truth, right, these people have the truth. The accuser of us, the devil, the enemy, we believe he's real. He's the one that's accusing us. He's the one that's sowing doubt. He's the one that's saying, did God really say, can you really trust him? Are you really sure? And oftentimes, what is he doing? He's using truth. Like there's actually a place where Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. I hope you know this. The, the devil knows the Bible better than you. And he believes in God. It's not enough to just believe in God. It's not enough to believe in the Bible. You gotta trust him. The devil doesn't, he, he knows it all, but he doesn't trust him. And so what does he do? Well, the accuser of our souls, the devil, what he does is he weaponizes truth in order to bring shame and despair and division. So there's a, some good points, but it's motivated by trying to destroy. On the other hand, the spirit of God takes truth and, and lovingly brings the truth to us in a way to help convict us of sin and help us change and help us grow and help us trust. So just because there's some truth doesn't mean they're correct. Number four, the opposition over time begins to grow and conspires to create confusion. So as I said, they had this initial kind of, uh, hey, you guys stink, you're the worst, your mama can't build a fence, you know, that kind of thing. 
And then it's like, hey, we're going ahead and we're doing it anyway. And that doesn't stop the opposition. It actually just makes them angrier. Verses 7 and 8 describe this. It says, when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And get this, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. It's interesting, the opposition grows. The descriptions of the, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. What the, what the author's doing there is he's describing the people now on all sides of Jerusalem. So it's not just these two guys that are mad, but now they've recruited a whole group of people. And there's lots of people upset. And it says in verse 8 that they plotted together. Listen, when you're trying to lead something, don't be surprised when the opposition gets organized. Then they come to you and here's what they say. You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, we've, we've gotten together and we've talked about this. A lot of people are saying. And what I found just, this one's for free, but as a leader, a lot of times when you go, uh, who? Well, my wife and uh, her brother and, there's this thing called, the sociologists call it false consensus effect. That you think that because you think something, everybody thinks something. But sometimes people actually do get together and go, we've had a meeting and we didn't invite you and here's what we concluded and here's what we think and here's where we go. They get organized. And the goal about this, as it says in verse eight, is to create confusion. They're not gathering people to go, how can we make this better? Yeah, this is a good idea. Let's just tweak our plan. That's not the goal. It's how do we destroy it? How do we confuse it? How do we make a mess of it? That's what it says in verse eight, right? This is like, I had teachers in school where like they would just have these hobby horses. And if their lesson was boring, you would just go like, hey, uh, can you tell us that one time about when you got chased by the police with the dog? Like that was a pretty funny story. Oh yeah, yeah, and off they go. And it's like, uh, well, Lesson over, right? That's the goal. They're not trying to make this better. They're just trying to create confusion. Fifth, the opposition in this passage and often in our lives easily moves from external to internal. Verse 10 is really interesting. Because up to this point, what you have is these external critics who aren't really part of us and they don't really get us and they aren't really on board with us anyway. And as a leader, that bothers you and that irritates you. And sometimes what they think, you know, kind of you hear about it, but it's kind of, you kind of go like, you know what? They're not, they're not even who I'm trying to lead. They're not who I'm trying to change. It doesn't matter, like whatever. But in verse 10, now it moves internal. Right, it started with the surrounding neighbors. Now it becomes the Jews. It says in verse 10, in Judah, it was said. That's the Jews. In Judah, they're now saying, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This happens a lot when you're leading something. When you get in that messy middle. Because when you start, there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of, yeah, we can do it. And when you're getting close to the end of the project, it's like, oh, we're almost there. That part in the middle is the part where everyone starts to go, I don't know. And it moves from external to internal. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, it says, at that time, the Jews who lived nearby came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. You got to come home. You got to get off the wall. You got to stop this. So you see what's going on? All that external criticism has now made the people go, 
yeah, maybe we are on the wrong track. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we should stop. Maybe we should go a different direction. The worst kind of internal critic is the one that criticizes yourself. Right, some, of, some of us have like the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Some of you just have the devil. And you start to hear the criticism and you go, yeah, I know I'm, I'm stupid. I, this is a bad idea. I'm a bad leader. I'm a bad, I'm a bad mom. I, I, I should have known better. I heard this question the other day. I thought this was a profound question. If you had a friend who spoke to you in the same way that you sometimes speak to yourself, how long would you allow this person to be your friend? And even some of you hear that and you're like, that's right, I'm so stupid. Why do I talk to myself like that? <laughs> this, is how, this is how subtle it is. But when that, in, when that criticism get, gets closer and closer and closer, this is when it gets really hard. And then finally, the last thing that the opposition does is ramp up the threat level. In verses, verse 11, it describes, hey, we're going to do this sneak attack. We're going to come among them when they don't expect it, when they don't see it. And it even threatens violence. We're going to come among them. We're going to kill them. And we're going to stop the work. And I'm not saying that every opposition to, uh, to change involves violence. But what, what I think the lesson here is, it's like they're mad and they're blustery. And then they get madder and they get madder. And now they get threatening. And people start to even threaten. Well, don't you know what will happen if you do that? Don't you know who will leave if that happens? Don't you know how that will go? Don't, here, listen, we're not going to take that anymore. Threat, threat, threat. So that's the opposition. That's how it works. How do we overcome it? I think Nehemiah provides a great lesson. How do we overcome this kind of opposition? In leading ourselves and leading other people, well, first, take it quickly to God, not to your critics. You start hearing the critique, you start hearing the yo mamas, you start hearing the you'll never do it, you don't have what it takes, and everything in you, because the stakes are high, and emotions are high, and your reputation's on the line, and it feels personal, the, the flinch is to go, well, you're a mama. Well, you can't build a better wall than this. Well, let me point out the flaws in your leadership, let me point out the flaws in you, and lash out. That's not what Nehemiah does. What does Nehemiah do? He quickly takes it to the Lord. Verse three, if a fox goes up on this, he'll break down their stone wall. And then verse four, this blows me away. The, the narrator here doesn't even say, so Nehemiah prayed. Verse four is just straight into prayer. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. What does that tell us? Here's what that tells us. That, that, that I think is written that way to say the initial reaction, the quick reaction, the flinch reaction to this criticism was to pray, not to fight. Our temptation's to fight, but we gotta resist it. One, uh, somebody said, no one can quite trace, you know, it was probably Mark Twain or, you know, the guy who says everything that he didn't actually say. But, but this is a great line, is that arguing with a critic is like wrestling a pig. You both get filthy and only one of you likes it. <laughs> and that's what we do. Well, let me give you a piece of my mind. And I just love it. He just goes straight to prayer. And look at his prayer. I mean, his prayer is pretty like whiplashy if you actually read it. Look at it. Verse four. 
Hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And all God's people said, blind them. Right, that's, that's essentially what he's doing. I mean, this, this is what theologians call an imprecatory prayer. The Psalms have a number of these. Jeremiah has a number of these. This is not like, God, uh, please give them your grace so that they could see it my way. This is like, God, they're opposing you. You, you deal with it. And I, I love a few things about the prayer. I love the honesty of it. God, you hear what they're saying. But I love the Godwardness of it. See, here's the thing, is, is he's saying, okay, this isn't mine to repay. God, you repay. God, this was your dream. God, this was your plan. God, this was your vision. This wasn't about me. This wasn't me just having some idea. Lord, I believe you've put this vision about rebuilding Jerusalem in my heart and they're against it, so they're against you. So here you go, God. And it's actually releasing it rather than holding on to it, rather than praying about it, but not actually letting go. He just lets go. Take it quickly to God not your critics. A lot of times what I do is I pray and then I argue in my head with the critic until I'm insane. Just pray. Here's a second way to overcome opposition is get moving in the right direction. Right? They hear this initial opposition, he prays, and then I love verse six. So we built the wall. So we built the wall. We got moving. They didn't finish it, right? It just all the way around, halfway. But we got working. We got doing. We didn't stop. We didn't say, well, okay, they're against us. Let's not do it. Yeah, they're right. They just went. Get moving in the right direction. You may not be able to do everything, but that doesn't mean you can't do something. And so keep going. Keep moving. I love this quote by uh, commentator Derek Kidner. He says this, so we built the wall. The sturdy simplicity of that statement and of the behavior it records makes Sanballat and his friends suddenly appear rather small and shrill, dwarfed by the faith, unity, and energy of the weak. I had to read that last phrase in a minute, the weak. Because I, I, I think that's where we are. We go, yeah, I'm weak, but I'm just going to keep going. I just, I'm going to just keep going. This is what God told me to do. I'm sorry it upsets you, but here, here we go. And if we can kind of disengage from the emotion of it and just say, I have an important job to do. I'm going to do it. Then it's a lot better, right? Like this Father's Day, you know, I'm thinking about my dad. And there's a lot about my dad that, um, you know, especially when I was a teenager, just drove me nuts. Um, but now I'm appreciative of a lot of it. One of those things is um, my dad had this real good ability to not kind of, when I was reactive, he didn't react to my level of reactivity. He just sort of stayed calm. One of the things that my parents would do, this, I hated this. Oh my goodness, did I hate this. Is if I, when I was in high school, middle school and high school, but especially I hated it in high school. If I was gonna go to someone's house or if someone was having a party, my dad insisted, that's fine, you can go, it'll be awesome, but I need to call and talk to the parents before you go. Why? Well, I just want to make sure they know about it. I want to make sure they're there. I want to make sure that they're cool. I want to just make sure they know us in case there's a problem. Well, you don't trust me? Well, you think I'm going to just do... Well, 
truth be told, the parents weren't home. That's why I didn't want them to call, right? Like, I wasn't trustworthy, but I'm going, you don't trust me? And he didn't go, no, because you're a dumb liar. He just said, oh, oh, you don't want me to call? No, I don't want you to call. I just want you to trust me. Oh, okay, well, so you don't want me to call? No. Okay, well, no problem. What do you mean, no problem? Oh, well, you just, I mean, you don't have to go. <laughs> well, but I want to, oh, but I thought you said you didn't want me to call. Right? He just, he would stay calm. And he was just kind of like, had this ability to feel like, he was kind of going, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play this who can yell louder game. Oh, you don't, you want to freak out about it? Go ahead. And I feel like that's what's going on here. You know what? While you're busy getting mad at us, we're just going to do the thing. Well, they get mad more, verses 7 and 8. They start plotting. They start creating, figuring out how are we going to cause confusion. And this leads us to the third way that you overcome opposition is you have to be prayerful and practical. Prayerful and practical. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is one of the best verses in the book of Nehemiah. I think it sums up Nehemiah as a leader very, very well. Here's what it says. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Okay, they're mad, they're organizing, they're getting settled. How are we going to respond to this? We prayed and we started packing, right? That's what's going on. We prayed and we set a guard. We prayed and we made a plan. We prayed and we strategized. I love the and because there's a lot of us that just do one or the other, right? We just go, well, we just need to pray, right? Like this is the person that won't go to the doctor because they'll just pray. It's like, well, God has provided medicine for you. Like there's things that could help you with this. No, we're just going to pray. And then there's other people who are like, well, science has all the answers. Let's just do that. No, you need to pray too. And I don't know what you are. What, What are you? Are you more of a, well, let's just pray about it or let's just have a good plan? I'm probably more of a, let's just have a good plan. And I love that Nehemiah says, no, we're going to pray and we're going to plan. So you're prayerful and practical. But then number four, and this is where I think it gets the most difficult, is to overcome opposition, you have to endure the most painful critics. And the most painful critics are the ones who are closest. Right, this is verse 12. That uh, in verse 12, where it says that uh, the, the Jews who lived nearby came from all directions and said 10 times, you got to stop this, right? So this is now, this isn't crazy Sam Ballot and Tobiah who we don't love and know and care about. This is like our people are saying, we should stop. We shouldn't go this direction. This is too scary. This is too different. This is, you know, we had it better back in Egypt. Let's just stop. This is where it's really hard because a lot of times these are the critics who know you and they love you and they're good people and they mean well, they're just scared. Oftentimes they're not bad, they're not trying to destroy the work of God, but they're scared, they're threatened. And what Nehemiah does 
is he just kind of goes, I'm sorry. This is where we're going. And this is hard as a leader. It's hard to disappoint people. I like this quote from the book Leadership on the Line. They say, leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. That's what leadership does. Substitute the word leadership for parenting. Or for anything, right? It's disappointing the people you're leading at a rate they can absorb. But if you're going to lead, if you're, if you're here and you go, we got to be there, and people don't all want to be there, right? Because you always have early adopters, and then you have some folks that will come along, and then you have some people who will never come along. Which means, at best, as a leader, you're never getting everyone to go. And so there are going to be people who won't go. And, and you can let that painful truth make you go, well, then never mind, none of us will go. Or you can go, well, this stinks. I wish you'd come. Here's our thoughts. Here's our reasons. Here's our heart. But if you don't go, you don't, you don't have to go. I'm sorry. I think, I think this other thing's going to be better for you. I wish you'd come, but. And this is hard because people in this position, what they do is they say, well, you're not listening. And a lot of times what they mean is, you're not doing what I want. And, and this is hard because as leaders, sometimes when we have a vision and we have a plan, we, sometimes we don't listen. But there's other times you go, no, I really am listening. I'm just not complying. And I'm sorry, God has given us this heart. God has given us this vision. Here's where we're going. How do we overcome opposition? Two more. Is uh, number five, we need to remember God's faithfulness in the past. So all this opposition, it's getting closer, it's getting closer, it's getting closer. Uh, he makes a plan in verse 13, he stations people around. And then in verse 14, he says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Do you see all the ands in that verse? And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. This is a storytelling way of, of slow-mo. Right, the screen in the movie, he's, he's rising and he's looking around. This is an epic moment. This is an important thing. What is Nehemiah going to say? Here's what he says. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Why do you not have to be afraid, Nehemiah? Because I'm remembering the Lord. It was the Lord who gave me this vision. It was the Lord who provided the resources. It was the Lord who opened the opportunity. It was the Lord who's been faithful to me in this process. It was the Lord who loved me from before I was born. It was the Lord who, even while I was still a sinner, sent Christ to die for me. It was the Lord who opened my eyes to see the beauty of Jesus so I could have my sins forgiven and have relationship with him. It was the Lord who gave me the spirit of God to empower me to serve him and to love him and to sacrifice and it's the Lord who will be with me every step of the way. Remember the Lord. And we, as New Testament Christians, have resources Nehemiah didn't have, which is the whole story of the gospel. Look to the faithfulness of God. Listen, if you try to look within or you try to look around, you will get discouraged. This is why you have to look up and you have to look back to the faithfulness of God. 
This last year as Redemption Church has been really, really difficult. Some of you uh, know a lot about that. Some of you don't. But uh, one of our congregations uh, especially just faced some really heavy losses last year. And, and we did, we faced not as heavy as Redemption Gilbert did, but uh, we've had quite a few people leave our church in the last year over um, things that we've said related to how we want to love people who are different from us. And especially how we want to have empathy and compassion and concern for people of color in our society. And that was hard. There were times we didn't always lead it well, but that was the stand we took. And we've had hundreds of people, maybe thousands across all of redemption, leave over that. There were some times in some conversations I was having last year with the leadership at Gilbert where they were saying, man, we're losing a lot of people. Are we sure, are we sure we're doing the right thing? Right, that crit- criticism wasn't out there. It got close. And there was a key moment for me. Um, see, I've got to take you back. So I moved out here in 2002 to be part of a church that's now Redemption Gilbert. It was called East Valley Bible Church. And uh, the founding pastor, there's a guy named Tom Schrader. A few of you know Tom. And when I, do, when I mention him, those of you that know him, you smile. But uh, Tom founded that church really on like a, we are going to have solid, strong doctrine. And one of the things that he started doing was every other year, he would teach about the doctrines of grace. He would teach about how salvation is not because of our choices, it's because of God's love and sovereignty and how ultimately we're not in charge of whether we're saved, God is. And, and he would teach that every couple years. And by the time I got there, uh, I think he had maybe taught it five or six different times. And it was always this thing people look forward to and they loved because he would teach it every other year. But here's the thing. The first time he taught it, half the church left. And this was when the church, was, I think in those days, the church was maybe 600 people, 300 people left. And last fall, as we were dealing with all the stuff we were dealing with, I woke up one day and it hit me. The most amazing thing about that whole deal was not that Tom taught the doctrines of grace six or seven or eight times. It was that he taught it the second time. Because the first time, half the church left. Don't you think that the next time you'd have some people going, hey, Tom, could we do something else? But he didn't back down. He learned from how he taught it did a little bit better, tried to get out of his own way a little bit. When he taught it the second time, half the church didn't leave, but some people still left. Why did he do it? And this is what hit me. Here's why he did it. Because it was in God's word. And he said, I've been called to be a steward of God's word. I've been called to be a preacher of God's word. And sometimes what I preach, people will love. And sometimes what I preach, people will not love. But as long as I'm preaching the book, that's what matters. Because my eyes are on the Lord. This isn't about me. And so my encouragement in redemption over the last year has been like, listen, our desire to love our neighbors, our desire to be a, a church that reflects heaven, where there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation, That's a book thing. That's a God thing. That's a remember the Lord thing. And so let's be wise about how we do it, but let's not back down for a second. 
And I don't want people to leave. And it breaks my heart when people, good people who I love, leave our church or other congregations. But it's in the book. We remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then finally, number six, we fight for a better future. Look at the end of verse 14. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight for that. Why? Because what he's saying is, this is what's at stake. What's at stake? If you're here and you're trying to go there, remember what's at stake. And in their case, here's what's at stake. What's at stake is your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes, their faith, their future, their life with God. All of that is at stake. If you're just leading something that doesn't matter, well then, yeah, by all means, give up. But if you're saying, no, we gotta go there. I, this is my heart when I told you, we're trying to be a faithful witness in a changed and changing world. Which means at times, we're gonna get accused of compromising the culture. And at times, we're gonna be accused by being jerks to the culture. And I don't know that we're always gonna do it right, but we are gonna try to be a faithful witness. Why? Because that's what God calls us to do, and that's what the next generation needs. The next generation is gonna get the keys to this thing, right? I wanna toss them to them and say, you're gonna do awesome, go for it. That's what I wanna do. Or we could make them pry them out of our cold, dead fingers. And we could create a bunch of stuff that they're gonna change the day they get the keys. Or we could say, no, we're gonna stay true to God's word and we're gonna pave a way for them to have a future with God. If you're leading a godly change, an important change, something that matters, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. You'll face opposition. That's the part of the deal. Pray and get to work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. God, as a leader, I wish I could be more like Nehemiah. I wish I had more courage. I wish I had more love. I wish I had more discernment. I wish I had more humility. And so God, all of those are reasons why I need you. And I thank you, Lord, that my standing with you is not on the basis of my leadership. It's on the basis of your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your mercy. And God, that's true for all of us. So as we come to the table, God, would you help us to remember the one who truly overcame the ultimate opposition? I pray in his name.